Welcome to the Podcast of Podcasts, a podcast that takes a moment to talk to podcasters about podcasting. The music for the intro is Funkers by Crowander, and it's provided under the Creative Commons content license. Our guest today on the podcast is Dr. Eric Detweiler. Dr. Detweiler is an assistant professor of English at Middle Tennessee State University. In addition to his own podcast, Rhetoricity, he also serves as an editor for the Sonic Projects section of the journal Enculturation. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Detweiler. What do you prefer, Eric? Uh, either one is totally fine with me, as, as I am often telling my students. Um, so Eric is fine. Okay, and the first unauthorized question, how are you doing today? I am doing all right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm as as many people are starting to sort of really ramp up for the the fall semester. As I'm also um, winding down a, a summer course, but but all told, um, despite you know a lot of guesswork about what this fall is is going to look like, um, not not as bad as it could be. All of my guests uh, on this podcast are podcasters. That's kind of what brings us together. And we're going to talk a little bit about podcasting and the, and the stuff that goes on behind the scenes. Uh, what is the name of your podcast and what is the, the format and the aim of your show? Uh, yeah. So my podcast is called Rhetoricity. That's just rhetoric with an I-T-Y at the end. Um, and typically speaking, the, the format is, um, is interview based, um, you know, just kind of like the show, like most of the time I or a guest interviewer are sitting down with somebody who studies and teaches um, rhetoric, writing something sort of in and around um, those areas, um, and just talking through everything from their research to their um, to their teaching to just other sort of aspects of their personal background and, and sort of the work that they do. And so in particular with those episodes, which like I said, are the, the vast majority of the episodes, the aim is largely to try to take what I think can sometimes be the um, sort of abstruse, difficult to digest material of like rhetorical theory and other kinds of rhetoric and writing research um, and, and kind of talk through it in a way that is accessible to a pretty broad range of people with some degree of, of interest in that field, be they, you know, undergraduates, uh, be they graduate students who are just starting out or, or hopefully up through people who have, you know, um, been, been studying and working with rhetoric and writing for a really long time. Um, you know, part of that is, is just that I know sometimes for me, when I'm reading like a, a book or an article or something like that, like I want to ask clarifying questions. I want to hear more examples of different kinds of things. Um, and, and I hoped that this, uh, this podcast would give me the chance to do so and to do so sort of on the behalf of listeners, um, and just to sort of exercise that curiosity a little bit. Um, but also, I mean, without maybe oversimplifying it, I think being able to hear, uh, firsthand some of like the the enthusiasm and the interest that people have in the topics that they work with and they research through um, an audio medium can be a really a really cool thing can be a, a different way of encountering that material um, while not necessarily a better or worse way than than reading it sort of from what might sometimes feel like like more of a distance um, but with that said, I, I will mention that I do have a handful of episodes that take kind of a different approach that are a little bit more sort of like audio essays or just experimental little goofs. Um, 
frankly, some of it was just to like have fun and play around a little bit um, and to try to be able to break away from the kind of genre norms and expectations that come with, with written scholarship. Um, and so in some cases, and hopefully this comes through in some of the interview episodes too, but especially with some of those more experimental, I guess, pieces, um, you know, I'm just hoping to take some of the, um, some of the ways that we have, uh, through habit or through obligation, um, sort of taken for granted with how scholarship is supposed to sound, supposed to look, supposed to unfold and just, you know, test the boundaries a little bit and play around with that some too. Is, is that also some of the things that you like to do with your involvement with enculturation? Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So for, for people who aren't familiar with, um, with that journal or the section I run, I, I'm the editor for the Sonic Project section, uh, of the journal Enculturation. And yeah, a big part of that, which is, um, looking for and publishing pieces that were born first and foremost, and sort of designed as, uh, pieces, uh, like audio pieces rather than written pieces, um, is to give people, the chance to play around with um, what you can do with scholarship in sonic form. Um, so hopefully not just, you know, take what could be a print article and read it aloud and then say, oh yeah, this is an audio essay now, but really think about what can I do with, you know, inflection and pacing and, um, you know, Foley work and sound effects and um, musical tracks or whatever else people want to bring into that mix. Um, and yeah, once again, without, um, saying this is no longer scholarship, this is something different, say, how can we use these sort of different forms to think about scholarship differently? I assume that we can find your show all over the internet. So what are the prime places that we can find your show? Uh, yeah, probably the, the main places. Um, one is uh, rhetoricity.libsyn.com. Um, that's L-I-B-S-Y-N.com. Um, and I mentioned that one because I use Libsyn, which is short for Liberated Syndication, as kind of my hosting service for the show. Um, and so if you go to that page, you'll see sort of um, the full kind of summary rundowns of each episode. Um, sometimes there's, you know, links to sort of supplementary materials, uh, transcripts for a number of episodes. Um, and so that's kind of the, maybe the most thorough resource rich destination. Uh, but if you're finding it in the way you might typically find podcasts, yeah, it's in, in the uh, Apple Podcasts app, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, most of those usual kind of podcast client spots. So thinking back to um when you decided to, to do that first podcast, um, what were your reasons for getting into this, uh, this um, particular mode? Yeah. I, I mean, I will say, honestly, it was, it was because I was asked um, at the, when I first started doing this work, um, I was a, a PhD student at the university of Texas at Austin. Um, and I was working there in a place called the digital writing and research lab. Um, so for people who, uh, maybe aren't, aren't familiar with that kind of, of model of graduate work. You know, a lot of people may have been in graduate programs where you had um, some of your time spent, say, in like the university writing center or something like that. And then some of your time was spent teaching or different kind of balances between those things. Um, and, at, and at Texas, uh, very fortunately for me, uh, and I think for a lot of students who work there, um, instead of doing kind of writing center work or other kinds of more, um, maybe more widespread kinds of one-on-one uh, -on -one sort of parts of an assistantship uh, that you might do. The digital writing and research lab was one of those options. Um, and in that lab, basically we were working 
in groups uh, with other graduate students, um, some in English, in linguistics, uh, in different kind of places around the university um, to create multimodal um, digital kind of rhetoric projects. Uh, and I happened when I was an undergraduate to be a failed audio engineering major uh, when I was a first year student before switching to a writing major. So I, I had kind of like just enough background and working with audio to be dangerous. Um, and the lab wanted to uh, start a project uh, that was a podcast. Um, so I ended up um, helping lead a podcast at that point called Zoopma. Um, and that was uh, the first kind of full-fledged podcast that I'd, that I'd ever made um, with a, a great group of students um, in that lab. Um, and, and again, it was largely because somebody was like, hey, I know that you have some background sort of working with audio. Would you be interested in, in heading this up? And then really from there, you know, I, I worked on that for a year, kind of moved on to some other things, even as it kept going with with uh, different teams working on it. As I got to the tail end of uh, my PhD work, I found myself, frankly, wanting to have a project other than my dissertation to work on that felt a little less heavy, where I could just be like, when I'm when I cannot do the dissertation anymore, I want something else to kind of work on. And so that's that was a big part of it. And then the other thing was was a little bit more a little bit more practical. I mean, it was um, that as somebody who was you know going on the market as a like digital rhetoric and writing person, I wanted to have a digital rhetoric and writing project that I could say I, I will bring this with me. It's not tied to my my graduate institution, um, and also gave me the chance just to be able to get in touch with a lot of scholars who I would have probably otherwise been too anxious or intimidated to get in touch with with a reason to be able to say, hey, would you like to be interviewed for this podcast that I run? I really love this, you know, fill in the blank book article project that that I know that you're working on, and I'd love to talk with you about it. And so some of that just, you know, marketability and, and networking stuff played into that decision as well, as much as it was also, um, at that point, kind of a fun diversion and supplementary thing to work on when I was really in the weeds with uh, with the dissertation. Yeah, talking to other people is very important when you're doing a dissertation. Mm -hmm. This is definitely one way to do that. Um, so not playing favorites, I'm not asking you to choose your your favorite. Um, what I am asking is, uh, were there any moments uh, when you had guests on that you were like, whoa, I can't believe I'm talking to this person? You know, anything like that, or, you know, maybe some of your most interesting guests that you most memorable for you? Yeah, that this is a, a great and difficult question. I'm sure as you're, you're, you're probably aware, it's, it's kind of like the podcast version of like, who's your favorite child, um, yes, <laughs> which is exactly. a hard thing to have have recorded. Um but but I will say for me, I mean, this is a little bit of of just a, a sort of um, I don't know a warm personal memory. But it was it was really special for me to be able to um, interview Diane Davis, who was actually my my dissertation director. So I I you know got to know her well as a mentor through that process. But basically, what ended up happening there, I mean, and she was someone like I went to Texas because I wanted to work with her. I really liked her work. So it was already a really special opportunity to be able to have her as a mentor more generally. But basically the the episode that I recorded that was a sort of full-fledged interview with her was very, very close after my dissertation defense. Um, so it was a really cool and I think special experience to be able to, after 
the the sort of experience of a dissertation defense with you know the committee there asking you all these questions about your project as much as mine was fortunately not an immensely traumatic experience to still have that sort of like you're in the spotlight answer all these questions to be able to flip that a little bit and to have a a, a a, a calmer and more peaceful conversation, but to be able to sort of ask her questions about her work, um, to have that be, you know, one of the first things that I did um, once I uh, had had passed that big benchmark um, in an academic career was was a really neat thing. And like I said, even though at that part, she was someone that, that I knew well and was, was comfortable talking with, um, somebody who over the longer term had been... Um, you know, such a, a, a meaningful and influential person for me in terms of the kind of work that I wanted to do was, was a really special thing. Cool. Also thinking back to the beginning, what sort of comments did you get when you first started out with rest rhetoricity and um, were they positive, negative, encouraging, uh, critical, uh, and have those comments changed over time? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll say fortunately, I never got any critical comments. I would guess largely because I think the people who would have made critical comments just weren't listening or, or didn't know that it existed. Um, but, you know, I, I think initially it was, it was um, encouraging. It was a little bit more um, at that point. I mean, I started this in 2015. So even though, you know, podcasts in general had been around for, for kind of a decade at that point, you know, I'd already done the work uh, on Zugma and things like that. Um, they were not as common in um, sort of the world of higher education as they are now. And so I think there was a little bit more sort of like novelty to it at that point. Like, oh, this is a really like neat thing that's happening. And, you know, got at that point, like a little bit more in part because I was seeking it out kind of like coaching and advice, like what can I do with this? Where can I go with this? And and comments on sort of how I might shape and approach it. I think now, like I, I still get, I still get a lot of those comments, but Fortunately, um, you know, I think podcasts are a lot more common as the project you're working on here kind of attests. There's now a, a big chunk of people you can talk to about um, about academic podcasting who do this kind of stuff, even in our field and, and sort of far beyond. Um, so I think there's still a, a lot of good conversation to be had, but it's with people who have a little bit more context for what this kind of work is and what it can kind of look like. Um, there's a little bit less of a novelty sort of element to those comments and conversations and a little bit more of a, this is a thing we're aware that we can do. What is the the work that's involved in that? Um, or how do you approach this versus the way that I approach it as someone who is also running a podcast? You know, those kinds of conversations um, are a little bit more common. Um, and, and I'll be interested to see where that goes. I mean, you know, there, there's so many different little digital genres and blips um, in, in the, you know, last 50 years of, of rhetoric and writing scholarship, you know, blogs kind of came and went in, in a certain kind of way, um, as much as there's still people who are still doing really cool work with blogs, but feels like maybe a little bit more of a, a staple of the early 2000s. And I'm not sure if podcasts will do kind of the same thing, if, if we're kind of in like a, a real boom moment, and then there'll be a little bit of a bust at some point, or you know, I think what, given the ways that they um, overlap in some really cool ways with like the, the history of both um, oral and sort of written communication as a part of rhetoric, whether they'll stick around um, a little bit longer as sort of a DIY genre. I guess the next question that I have for you is uh, sort of like 
the other question that people balk <laughs> at. Um, is your uh, is your pantheon like full of people you just love to have on the show, or is there someone that you were like, you know, if they were on my show, yeah, I so would love. To I, I will admit, I'm, I'm going to really embrace the way that you you uh, phrase this question when you sent the written version to me, which is, who is your dream guest? And I'm going with someone who would truly okay. A dream guest in the sense that this will will never happen for reasons that will be obvious. But um, I think for me, it would probably be uh, Gloria Anzaldúa. Um, and and I mean, the, the big kind of dream part there is that she, she passed away a, a number of years ago at this point. But she's someone whose work I first encountered way, way back in like what I didn't realize at the time, but in retrospect was kind of my first like undergraduate rhetoric class. Um, we read some some sections from uh, Borderlands La Frontera in that class. And that those selections just like blew my mind. Like at the time, like to to encounter someone who is doing such inventive and creative work that blended kind of like memoir and autobiography with sort of cultural and historical research with rhetorical considerations um and the translingually mm-hmm. and, yeah. yeah it just i mean just stuck with me for a really long time um you know it was the, the selections we read were in some iteration for for those who remember um back when uh, ways of reading was a really popular anthology um in like first year writing and, and you know sort of undergraduate <laughs> rhetoric and writing courses um and, you know, I, I had that textbook. Um, I probably still have it somewhere. And I would go back to those selections a number of times in the coming years. I teach them now. And so just to be able to, again, in sort of a dream world, be able to to sit down with her as much as a lot of her work is now, you know, 20, 30, 40 years old and, and sort of ask her about sort of the, the resonances of that work as I think it continues to have a, a huge amount of potential relevance today to sort of get her perspective in a moment where where rhetoric and writing studies has become sort of a, a much more established discipline in some ways, even though she wasn't necessarily like in it in the way that that we might think of people being in the field now would I, I would be I don't know. I, it would probably be the worst interview I would ever conduct because I would just be like babbling and rambling and nervous the whole time. But that, for those same reasons, would probably be like the dream interview for me. Right. Perhaps with others who shall not be named, mm-hmm. um, there there is still time now that chirotic moment to get some of those folks historically recorded, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and see what they think about their own practices, mm-hmm. uh, before, before that time is, is passed. Yeah. I guess now we'll take the turn toward the technical. Um, what sort of equipment did you start with? I, I know you had an, an access to a lab at that point, mm-hmm. but I mean, your own personal equipment, what did you start with? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> very, very little, <laughs> I guess is the answer. Um, yeah, I mean, when we were doing the lab stuff, it was, um, at that point, um, the series of USB mics called uh, the Blue brand, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to remember, I think it was the the Cardinal, F- forgive me if this was not actually a Blue microphone, um, but it was just this little like, you know, USB like mic that, you know, had this kind of vintage look to it. You screwed on like a little bass and you set it in front of the computer and ran it in and we would just kind of record on that. And we would have a couple people kind of like clustered around it when we needed to. And and when I was first starting out, I was able to, you know, like check out that mic for a couple of days and, and use it. 
Um, but when I really had my first setup for myself, it was essentially um, a Zoom H4N recorder, which is like a little um, handheld recorder that has stereo mics that that pop out at the top of it. Um, and what you could basically do with that is, is again, screw a little stand into the base of it, set it, you know, on, on top of a table with one of the two kind of mics that are, that are in a sort of X shape uh, pointing at you and another one pointing at the person you were talking to if you were doing an interview and just record directly into that. And then, you know, it had a little SD card in it that you could like pop out the side, um, plug into a computer, grab the audio files and edit from there. So that was, that was really what I started out with was first just a, a USB mic that I could check out when I needed to. And then once I actually had a small budget, was able to set aside a little bit of money for my own equipment, just that, that zoom H4N all on this lonesome. So that might qualify as field work there with mm-hmm. the, the zoom H4N back in the days when we actually met face to face and talked to people. So what equipment do you use now? Um, is there a specific thing that drew you to your current setup? Yeah. So, so I'll say at this point, I have a few different setups basically for what kind of work I'm doing. When, if assuming, hopefully we do at some point, we get back to live in-person conferences and, and meetups and things like that. I still use that that Zoom H4N, but I now have a couple of different uh, mics. There are these um, Samson CO2 condenser mics that run out of the Zoom um, so that essentially you've got two mics that you can place much more closely and carefully to interviewer and interviewee um, get more distinct kind of tracks and um, and be able to edit those with a little bit more precision in terms of them being you know separate instead of just the one track that you were getting together. And the, one of the nice things about those is they're pretty good at, at really, really pinpointing what they're recording in terms of like the direction they're picking up. So even if I'm uh, in like a conference space and there's, you know, not like a private room that I can reserve for this kind of stuff. If you find a place kind of on the edge of a lobby or something like that, or like a little alcove with a, a table and a couple chairs in it, you can make that work. And, you know, there'll be some hubbub in the background, but nothing too overwhelming. When I'm recording at home, when I'm doing interviews at this point, I have uh, another blue mic, the Blue Yeti, which is a pretty sort of well-known, you know, sort of podcasting mic. And what that's allowed me to do is just plug in um, to my computer. So when I'm recording an interview via a Zoom call or something like that, it's picking up much better audio from me in the recording than if I were recording, you know, straight into like the built-in mic in my computer or something like that. Um, so that I've had that mic for a while, but I've mostly used it for like, you know, recording like voiceover for like online classes or stuff like that. Um, but it's come in handy in terms of being able to do recordings that I'm doing like on, on my computer, especially during the pandemic for sort of remote interviews. They also cut out the need for file transfer there. Yeah. Yeah. That's been very handy. Yeah. And, And the final one I have, um, that I use when I'm doing, uh, just kind of, solo recordings. So when I'm recording like the introduction to an episode, or when I'm, again, recording a more like sort of audio essay style, like non interview essay, uh, episode, I've got a sure SM7B mic um, that runs through a little device called a cloud lifter, which basically makes the audio that comes out of that mic a little bit 
louder and thus a little bit easier to work with because um, that mic it has a tendency to be very, very quiet in terms of what it picks up. And then that all runs uh, still into that um, handy dandy old Zoom recorder. And so that gives me a lot better audio quality than I would get with, you know, the, the um, pair of Samson mics, the Yeti. And when it's something that I can record in a really controlled environment and it's just me and I'm able to record to that and then, you know, pop out that SD card and then grab the files from there. Um, that's, that's what I use for sort of the most, it's probably my highest FI, I guess, re- recording setup for a particular kind of work. Right. The, the deep theoretical question comes next. I like to hop around a little bit. Um, what are your thoughts on the oral mode of communication and its place in, say, business tech writing, um, maybe composition in general, or even academia? Yeah. So, so I think maybe starting with the focus on the field that that I sort of come from the most, which is a little bit less than sort of business and tech writing, a little bit more the sort of like rhetoric and composition or rhetoric and writing studies side. I think there's some really neat ways that oral slash oral communication, you know, um, sonic and audio kind of work can pull together a whole bunch of different threads from our disciplinary history, you know, with, with podcasting in particular and, and with, you know, some other modes as well that are still working in that kind of like sonic oral realm. There's an element of sort of writing and composition and the stuff that we, uh, is, is most kind of our bread and butter to it. You know, there's a lot of very careful choices to be made about how you script and write out questions. If you're doing an interview, um, how you write out, um, you know, a, a script for a full fledged sort of more essayistic piece. Um, you know, one assignment, for example, that I've given my students a number of times over the years is to have them do, one project, one kind of writing project, but do it both for the page and for the ear. So if you were to, you know, write an essay about this topic, how would it look if you were writing it as a script for an audio piece versus if you were writing it for someone just like pick up and read on the page or screen? And there's super, super different obligations and um, sort of audience engagement to consider with those two forms. Um, What makes for an effective piece of writing is very, very different than what makes for an effective script um, that you're going to read and that someone's going to be listening to. Um, You know, even thinking about something as simple as how relatively difficult it is to like do a very pinpointed like five second rewind when you miss a point in a piece of audio versus being able to just skim back up a couple lines when you're reading something on the page. You know, you you have to have different considerations in terms of like memory and how a person is going to engage with those different forms. Um, And I think, again, that sort of like builds on and potentially enriches the questions about what makes for effective compositional decisions. How do we think about audience and purpose when we're writing that are are really in a lot of ways have been kind of the bread and butter of, of rhetoric and writing studies for a long time. And I think to broaden it out a little bit, it's also a place where you can find some really cool connections between the sort of bifurcated rhetorical traditions in English departments and communication studies departments. Um, You know, for people who know the history of the discipline, you know, there'll, there'll probably be some awareness that those two kind of split in a weird way as sort of 
you know, writing and composition training went to English departments and sort of speech communication uh, training and courses went to communication studies departments sort of over the course of the uh, of the 20th century in particular. But as in places like, you know, the Rhetoric Society of America or other sorts of spots, um, you know, burgeoning sort of interdisciplinary departments that focus on rhetoric and writing sort of come back together. I think that that kind of aural and, and audio work gives us a cool way to take some of the stuff that's been taught and theorized and, and attended to in communication studies and its sort of rhetorical corners with um, the sort of stuff that is a little bit more writing and sort of computers and composition sort of work that's been happening uh, primarily in English departments and to bounce those two off of each other in some really, uh, really cool ways. So thinking about those students with whom I've also tasked such, I'm told, very difficult tasks to think uh, in two ways like that. Uh, what advice would you give to the beginning podcaster who has been asked to write a script and make a podcast? So much. <laughs> this, this could be like a 45-minute response, but I'll try to try to keep things under control. I mean, I would say a couple things. One and they may feel a little bit at odds, but but we'll see where it goes. The first thing I would say is put in some time to really like practice and work on the kind of podcasting work that you want to do before you are anticipating like releasing an episode next week or something like that. Um, I think one of the biggest things I encounter, especially with... Um, with students that I work with um, is a sense that podcasting is this really sort of off the cuff kind of medium um, where you don't need to do a lot of prep work where this part of the fun of it is you can kind of jump in and sort of do whatever you want. Um, and, and it can feel more sort of like casual and, and easy than like writing an essay or something like that. And there are, plenty of podcasts out there on the internet that operate in just that way. Um, and uh, they, they make me a little bananas to, to be honest, sometimes these sort of like long unedited discussion podcasts where like the episode is two hours long. It's a, a group of friends with some similar niche interest who are just like talking about it, doing no editing and just putting it out in the world. Now there are, to be honest, a few podcasts kind of of that, kind that I, I listen to that I enjoy, but it takes so much of a kind of pre-existing buy-in to the very specific topics and the very specific senses of humor uh, and just general sensibilities that can come with, with the hosts of the show. And what I'm often trying to get students to think about is all of the um, sort of unrecognized and unseen work that can go into making a more sort of widely appealing and rhetorically effective podcast, even the most sort of conversational one. One of the examples I give a lot, which goes back a few years to when this was what was on people's radar, but um, when Radiolab was kind of the one of the podcasts that people were really, really likely to know as sort of like a syndicated, you know, NPR show, um, I would often talk about how if you listen to the hosts at that time, Jad Abumrad and Robert Krolwich, when they were sort of talking with each other on that show, it often sounded very unscripted. 
like they were just like two, you know, buddies just like having this unfiltered, unscripted conversation about the topic of that week's episode. Um, and that part of the appeal of that is that sense of like, you know, you're, you're getting this sort of like off the cuff conversation between the two of them. You're not just getting this very sort of stilted monologue or something like that. But what people often didn't realize is how scripted and edited and carefully prepared those segments were. And part of the fact that it felt so casual and comfortable was the amount of practice and script writing and revision uh, and re-recording that would go into those segments. And so I think helping students and early podcasters realize that even that sort of, um, you know, off the cuff, seemingly casual uh, sort of discussion stuff that is, is a core part of podcasting, to do it well takes a lot of prep is, I think, really important. And to get back to sort of my initial point here, that's the kind of thing that can take a lot of practice. Um, it, it took me a long time of like writing out intro scripts for a podcast episode, reading it three different times with different inflections, listening back to all three different recordings and figuring out, okay, what's working well here? What sounds like I'm reading and what sounds like I'm, I'm kind of speaking casually, even though I am reading? Um, what, what sounds like I've got a degree of sort of emotional punch to it and what feels very dry? And so it was even me learning, like a lot of times when I record, I stand up for no other reason than that it helps my body move around a little bit more um, and helps my voice sound a little bit more animated because I'm able to be a little bit more animated, assuming I don't actually punch the mic with one of my hands um, <laughs> while I'm recording. Um, I'm laughing. Not that that's ever happened to me, but yes. <laughs> of course not. I, I'm the only person who's ever, who's ever had yeah, those kind of technical right. difficulties. Um, the one other thing I would say for podcasters uh, that, is kind of counter to the practice thing is um, don't be afraid to experiment. Oh, sure. I think a lot of people come to podcasting feeling like podcasts are X, Y, or Z. I need to do it that way. Um, I need to have a consistent length to all my episodes. I need to have a consistent format, all that kind of stuff. But I do think one of the things that's cool about podcasts versus historically like radio series is that you aren't beholden to scheduling constraints. You aren't beholden to particular format expectations. Um, and so as much as I would suggest like practicing and making sure that you're, um, you're not jumping in cold to the kind of podcasting work you want to do. Um, and you're aware of the sort of unseen work that can go into that. I would also say, um, be willing to experiment, even if that means you get some audio files that you just dump and never end up putting out. Um, you know, I think one of the cool things about this is you can have three different episodes where you do three very different things released um, potentially at inconsistent times at wildly different lengths. And while there can be issues with like building a stable audience over time with that kind of stuff, um, it, it's, it's one of the possibilities of this uh, medium. So in, in keeping with that um, advice uh, strategy and all those files that you seem to be um, uh, prone to create, how important would you say something so simple as file organization would be for a new podcaster? Yeah, I, file organization is a, a hugely important part of this kind of work. Um, I, I will say maybe learn from my mistakes here. Um, one of the episodes I released not too long ago was an interview with uh, Michelle Kennerly and Damon Smith Fister. 
uh, about a book they edited together called Ancient Rhetorics and Digital Networks. I recorded that interview in 2018, and I couldn't find the file for two years <laughs> after that. And, and what the issue was is, you know, when I, when I go to conferences, I have a, 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 usually a handful of SD cards that I take with me to plug into my little Zoom recorder. Um, and that was a conference where I ended up doing, I was working on some other audio projects at the conference. So um, I had probably like five or six SD cards in the mix. And that interview was just one of those where I, I sort of absentmindedly at the end of, you know, a long three or four days of audio work, just like dropped it in the wrong little, con- I forget if at the time it was a container or like little, you know, uh, sleeve or something like that. Um, and just could not find it. And so for me, one of the really important things to do, especially working with that kind of like SD card setup, rather than typically recording straight to, to a desktop or laptop computer, um, has been making sure that in the moment I've got either like a, a note on my, my phone or like a, you know, a page in a, um, in a little, you know, uh, notebook or something like that, where I'm tracking what's the name of this uh, file, what is the SD card I'm recording it on, and then either as soon as I get back to the hotel room uh, or as soon as I get back from that trip, being able to just like sort all those files into separate folders for each interview and very clearly name, you know, not doing the like interview cut final, final no really final kind of file name. Um, but you know, like raw uncut interview, edited interview, edited interview with intro, um, with kind of a, you know, a consistent sort of beginning file name, very carefully sorted into folders and, um, backed up on some sort of like cloud storage device too. Um, because occasionally, you know, those files can even get like corrupted in the course of trying to mess with them in different audio editing programs. Um, and so having like a clean original backup that you can go back to, even if you weren't dealing with like a full fledged, like computer crash or something like that, um, can be really, really useful. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's not, there's not one way to do it, but I would say, especially if you are, are transporting, um, files from one storage device to another, um, that kind of like quickly and consistently, uh, having a file structure that you can like build them into uh, is is really important. So elements of not only digital storage, but physical storage as well and physical organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I have a little, uh, what, what almost looks like, uh, like pill organizers, uh, but for SD cards at this point with like different little, you know, containers that I can sort of take them out and snap them into and write with a Sharpie uh, on the cards themselves or on the lid, like what is, which, which of the cards is this, you know, number them or whatever, so that then I have that um, sort of organizational structure before they get moved into the digital structure um, on the main computer I used to do my editing. Okay, so let's let's go back in time. If you need to close your eyes, that's fine. They're closed, okay. To um, the first time you're about to go into the lab to actually start some podcasting back at uh, UT. You have developed a time machine and you're able to tra- travel back to that moment in time. You get one minute to uh, give yourself advice before you walk in there. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to move fast here. So I'm imagining that one minute window. Don't be afraid to take multiple passes when you are initially planning the edits for an episode. 
when I was first starting out doing podcasting, like when I would get to the editing stage, you know, I had all the recordings done. I had all the files ready to go. Um, I was listening to, you know, the initial cut of an interview. I would often just load the file into an audio editor and start editing from front to back, you know, and that was everything from like taking big two minute chunks where we got to the end and the interviewee said, you know what, actually, I want to say that a different way. And I'd take out that whole two minute chunk or, you know, cutting out little ums or short pauses. Uh, and what would often happen because of that is I would get, you know, five minutes into, you know, an interviewee's response to a particular question and would have spent half an hour doing all this fine tuned kind of editing. And then I'd get to the moment where they were like, actually, let me say that a little bit differently. I think I can make this point better. And I'd be like, oh, I just spent half an hour editing the thing that they ultimately were just like, yeah, you can just cut that. And so it, it has really developed into a multi-stage process for me at this point in the kind of work that I do where like, I'll, I'll queue up the episode. I'll, I'll usually start playing. I'll, I'll listen to it once without taking any notes, just listen to the entire raw audio uh, to get like a broad feel of it. And maybe I'll take like a couple notes along the way, like, oh, note that at like the, the 15 minute mark, their answer to this question is actually probably a good thing to move up and be one of the first things they say at the episode in the episode to frame everything else that happens after that. But but pretty just big picture notes. Then after that, I'll usually go back and do a second listen with a sense of the whole episode where I just have like a, a word document open or something where I'm taking really time stamped notes where I'm like, okay, at 11 minutes and 30 seconds, they make this point that they then make again later on in the episode in a way that I think works better. Um, or I need to, you know, I ask them at the end, Oh, you mentioned this rhetoric scholar early in the episode. Would you mind saying who that is for people who don't know that name? And I need to cut that little, you know, biographical note up earlier in the episode. Um, and only then once I've got those notes kind of mapped out, do I actually jump into the audio in an audio editor and start to make those changes. And it's a little bit more time consuming on the front end to do those multiple listens and passes through, but ultimately it ends up saving me a ton of time and helping me step a little bit more into the listener's shoes, uh, in terms of how I'm approaching edits, uh, instead of doing it in a way where, you know, I often end up doing redundant edits that just get thrown out anyway, or I'm so in the sort of minute to minute, second to second of the audio that I'm just not hearing it in the way that somebody who's going to listen to it in one pass, one chunk, um, is going to hear it where they're going to hear minute 15 and minute 20, five minutes apart instead of like two days apart or something like that. Mm -hmm. That sounds a lot like what I try to get my students to do in their written work as well when they do their review. Uh, it's a nice to hear that that we can apply some of the things from composition that we learn with written word into this sort of editing as well. Yeah, it, it's it's definitely one of those moments of like, why wasn't I doing the things that I already tell my students to do all along? Exactly. So is there anything else that you would like to add before we uh, close the interview? Uh, I guess the, the one final thing I'll mention um, is uh, I've mentioned this in the most recent episode of the podcast, but it, it's on a, a little bit of a hiatus right now, just because I've got a, a number of other kind of big, uh, both local institutional and sort of research projects that are going to be taking up a bunch of my time over the next year. Um, 
but I did put out a call a while ago on the podcast just uh, for anyone who's interested in, in maybe doing some sort of collaborative thing, you know, submitting an episode, uh, particularly, um, you know, scholars of color, junior, uh, junior scholars who would be interested in uh, doing some audio work um, on a via a podcast that has kind of an established audience. I, I welcome people to get in touch. Um if you have any ideas you want to pitch or things like that, um, and basically use use this podcast as a place to sort of uh, promote and share your work, um, just just reach out and let me know. Thank you for your kindness and agreeing to do this uh, interview and historical um, documentation of, of uh, your take on podcasting. Yeah, well, thank you so much for taking the time for it. It was, it was great to talk. Mm-hmm.